Good morning. Got your Bibles turned to the book of Isaiah. We are um, still obviously in Isaiah. We are in Isaiah 42, uh, starting with verse 18. I um, don't know if you have been paying attention to what's going on in our world today, especially going on down in Tennessee uh, at Asbury College. Uh, uh, there's a normal, they do chapel three times a week. During one of the chapel services, some people decided to stay and they continue. They've been continuing now since then, praying, uh, worshiping, and uh, repenting. Um, I am, am one of the people that would say I would not call it a revival just yet. Because the revival is determined by the result of it, um, so we'll talk about revival next week. Actually, uh, as we get into the uh, get into Isaiah 43, it's interesting that this is the time that this is where this is at. Um, if you if you're online, you'll see a lot of people will say that it's not a revival, and and part of it is because some of the people who are coming to it, um, some of the Word of Faith people have grabbed onto it, um, and so we we must be careful. Um, to call it what it is, the question is, is it going to last? Is it truly a revival? From what I have seen, from what I've heard from people that I trust, um, there's something going on. Um, Alyssa Childers is a commentator. She used to be in a, in a, in a worship, uh, a, a, I guess a music group, you call it. And she is pretty solid, and she says it felt sweet. She said, I don't know what it was. I mean, she knew it was Christ, but she didn't know if it was quite a revival yet, but it felt sweet when she was there. So there's something happening. And so we'll see if it spreads and what the results are. They, it's, it, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it next week, uh, about how it started. And, um, and it's it's good thing that it started. I mean, it's a, it's a good place that it started from. It's just the question is, um, will the right people uh, allow the Holy Spirit to move in the direction it's supposed to? So... Um, just wanted to bring that up, um, just in case any of you did know about what was going on down there. Um, so today, though, we are we're going to talk about Reformation. Uh, you know, who are your heroes in your life? Who inspires your life? Uh, many times, it's sometimes our parents, our grandparents, an aunt or an uncle who may have had influence on our lives as a nation. Uh, our, our past is full of, quote, heroes. Um, Beth and I, the kids are in, our, are in the middle of, um, their history is on the American Revolution, the early American time. So in, in April or right after Easter, we're going to be gone for the rest of, uh, rest of April. We're going to be in Williamsburg. Looking forward to that. So the kids will get some history and see, be able to see some of the things the way it was at that time. But we have heroes in our history, too. We have people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. And then you get into George Washington Carver, Harriet Tubman. And you, and you can go throughout history, and you can start to see these people who are heroes to us, who, who've inspired us. George Washington is one of my favorites. If you've been in my office, I took one of my paintings home, but I have two prints of George Washington praying. He was a man of prayer. We just Last night, we just finished up watching the film 1776 about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Great movie. Kids couldn't understand why they kept singing. I was like, yeah, your music just breaks out anywhere, and they just start singing, you know, but they realize that's not real. But it's pr pretty interesting that what they did in that movie. But it seems like in recent years, what has happened is there has been an attack on our heroes in an effort... To, to talk about equity and, 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 and to fight racism, they believe, they have to tear down the heroes of our past, 
to dethrone them. And many of our modern-day heroes have failed us in so many ways. It seems that heroism seems to be going out of fashion. In a book called The Death of Adam, Essays on Modern Thought, Marilyn Robinson, this is what she writes. She wrote, when a good man or woman stumbles, we say, I knew it all along. And when a bad one has a gracious moment, we sneer at the hypocrisy. It is as if there is nothing to mourn or to admire, only a hidden narrative now and then apparent through a false surface narrative. And what she's saying is she's saying we, we, we see the narrative, we see the story of someone's life, and we always think there's something not right. We're just wait. They're going to fall. They're going to prove us wrong. They're going to prove that they're not who they say they are. She ends it with, and the hidden narrative, because it is ugly and sinister, is therefore true. We've become cynical and untrusting. And in the process, I think we've lost the sense of God. And see, when this happens, the things that make life worth living are gone. But see, what happens is God wants to give it back to us. See, as non-believers, we're lost. We, 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 we don't see the truth, the beauty of God and what he has planned for us. He wants to give our lives back to us. He, even in our brokenness, he has a plan for us and a purpose for our lives. Now, ultimately, God's plan is to renew the whole universe. If you, if you study Scripture, you go back you go back to Genesis and you see the fall, and you take it and you read through Scripture and you go to, to Revelation and you see what he's doing. He's, he's recreating the universe in, Re, in Revelation as to what it was at the beginning, what it was supposed to be. But he begins that right here. This is where God begins to rebuild the universe the way it's supposed to be. At the core of who you and I are. God wants to reform us as people. When we lose our purpose, that's his goal. He wants to change our hearts. It's like I said last week. Behavior modification does not solve the problem of sin. All it does is, is, is get us in a, a different direction. That The sin is still there. We need to have a changed heart. And once he changes our hearts, then he will revive us later on. He'll revive us, and we're going to talk about that next week, revival, which I think we are in dire need of today. Most people do. So the renovation of the universe begins with the reformation of our hearts and leads to our revival. But what is reformation? Well, reformation is it's, it's a renewal of this passionate clarity of the purpose that God has placed on us. It's, it's being reawakened to the love for the standards of God and for his truth. In Romans, Paul says, man is without excuse. I mean, we, we have no excuse for not following God's law because we see in nature, we see his invisible qualities. More and more, as science is, is exploring more things, they're like, well, it's not anything like, this is impossible. This can't be the way it is. Well, it's the way it is because... Of God. He has put his name, his handprint on everything. And we're without excuse. But he will awaken us. He, he's preparing us to display a glorious salvation that he's offering to us. 
And what it's going to do when he does that, when it's, when it's true, when, it's, when it really is, when we really surrender ourselves to God, what he does is he reshapes us to the point that it reaches to every single corner of our lives. It doesn't just, you know, it's not just that inside I'm a better person and I think better of myself and of the world. No, he, he wants to work into every itsy-bitsy corner of our lives. That's why we need to surrender all of it to him. We can't just give him something on Sunday morning and live the rest of the week as if nothing is any different. He wants all of it. He deserves all of it. It belongs to him anyways. And in the process of doing that, he not only reshapes us, he's going to reshape the whole church. We'll see in our verses today that there are four points where God reforms us. There's a problem that's confronted. That's the beginning of the Reformation. But there's a remedy. The remedy is grace. And then his reason, he has a reason for intervening in our lives. He could have just left us alone and left us go on our merry way. But he has a reason for it. And then there's a final outcome. What is the final outcome? So let's begin by looking at the problem. We see that in Isaiah 42, verses 18 through 20. He says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Sounds like our children sometimes, doesn't it? They hear us, but they don't hear us. Last week we saw that the blind will be led into a new light. But again, so here, but here we have the blind and the deaf. And God calls them his servant. But I thought last week it said that Jesus, the Messiah, was the servant was God's servant. And we know that Jesus wasn't deaf or blind. He was fully devoted to the, his Father's will. He was not deaf or blind at all. So who is Isaiah talking about? Who is God talking about through Isaiah? It's actually in verse 24 that we, just, we figure out who this is, and that's Israel. God has now switched gears. He's talking about Israel. Israel had a mission. And their mission was much greater than just taking the promised land and eliminating the giants and, and eliminating those uh, nations who had been sinning for so long. Their mission was much greater, much bigger. Much, it, it was huge. Their responsibility was to show the amazing glory of living for God amongst the nations. They were living according to God's word. That was what they were supposed to do. And they were supposed to show the nations around them what it meant to be God's chosen people. And those nations were to want to have that and were to want to become part of God's chosen people. Hence why I've said this before, why Jesus, when he turned the tables over in the temple, said, "My Lord's, the Lord's house, my Father's house, is to be a house of prayer for who? For the nations. It wasn't just for the Jews. But unfortunately, the Jews failed. They decided that they would much rather chase after the other gods, the other gods of the other nations. You see it over and over again. Yeah, they have those moments. We saw Hezekiah. Josiah is another place where we see where they, they come back, they find the law, and they just they, they, they recommit themselves. That's revival. 
But for the most part, they failed. And what did they not see or hear? Verse 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. See, they didn't see the glory of God's law. And I think today we struggle to see the glory of God's law. Well, I'll just say quickly, I'll just say this one note about the, what's going on down at, at Asbury College in Tennessee. Um, usually, what, if you, revival starts with the law, it always starts with the law. You present the law, it changes people's hearts, and they repent. And that's what has happened so far. But see, the Jews, they didn't obey the law. In fact, they made laws all around the law so they wouldn't break the law. They thought they were loving the law, but they were actually making it into a religion of works instead of a religion by faith. And it's always been by faith. It says, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend, and will to listen for the time to come? Nobody could save them. And I don't think it's just talking about the fact that they were plundered by other nations. I think they were plundered by their own sin. Sin takes us and it captures us. It holds us in chains. And we need someone to come and save us. Think of the scene of Paul in, in, uh, or Peter in prison. He's, he's in prison. He's chained up. And who comes along? An angel comes along and releases his chains, and he thinks he's dreaming, and he ends up being released. Paul, Peter could never have, have gotten himself out of prison. God had to step in. So God sent his perfect servant, Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 4 of this chapter was looking forward to the Messiah. Verses 18 and 19 are looking at the failure of Israel to be led to lead the nations, to be led as a nation by God, and then to lead the other nations around them. But what happens is when Christ comes, he embodies the perfect law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He is the law. Everything was, all the law was fulfilled in Christ. But see, the Jews were as blind as the nations around them. They couldn't see it. But with Jesus embodying the perfect law, people would flock to him. Why? You start to read the scriptures, you find that he, he doesn't speak like the others do, he speaks with authority. Why? Because he wrote the law. He knows the law. He knows the truth of the law. He knows what they've been doing to the law. People would flock to his side. And see, that is our mission today. We as a church, we are to act like Jesus. We are to be God's hands and feet going out, sharing the law. Yeah, we need to share the law with people to show them that they have fallen so far from where they should be and from God. And people should be sensing within us a difference, that there's something different and beautiful about who we are and who we serve. And so we want to come and experience that. See, when our life as a church, when we glorify God, 
people will see it and they'll want to have that. So that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Do people see Christ in me and want it? The problem in churches today is that we have made this a strategy for our own self-ambition. Churches try to impress with what they do by bringing glory to, to the one who does the work. They, they forget that it's God doing the work in us, and they bring glory to themselves. And in the process, they become whitewashed tombs. So we see in, in the time of, of Isaiah, we see that the people have, they've given up their purpose. They're, 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 no longer, they're no longer looking to the law and saying, how can we be a, an example to the nations? They're bringing the things of the nations into them. So God is going to discipline them. Verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned in whose ways we, they, they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So we poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around and he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. I, I would argue that we are not a whole lot different in our society today than the Israelites. We have short attention spans. We struggle to pay attention. When God warns us about the discipline that will come, and if we don't, you know, if we don't stay on our purpose, we instead we go and we exchange what should be, what is beautiful is, is our, our, our our faith in Christ. We exchange that for the idols of this world. And then in the process of doing that, we think that God's being unfair. He's unfeeling. That's not fair. I should be able to. I should be able to have all of that and this. The problem is not God or his expectation of us. It's not, it's not the problem. The problem's us. The problem's the church itself. See, as, as a church and as people, we need reformation. God's going to, but it has to come from God. God has to do it. So, how's he going to do it? And this we get to the remedy. Chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I know we see the words Jacob and Israel in these verses, but you must understand that each of us has been knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. We are his. We are his people. We were created by him. And he calls each of us by name. And he says, come and see what I'm going to do. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, God is faithful, but whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Nobody comes unless God calls them. 
And in the process, when God calls them and we answer, God has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given us the finished work of Jesus Christ and applied it to us. What does that mean? That means that you and I deserved wrath. We deserve to be, to be eternally separated from God. Even our death is not enough to pay the price for that. But what does he do? He sends his son, who is God, sends him, he, and he suffers and dies on the cross. It's called, it's, called, it's called substitutional atonement. He paid the price for our sins. Because only God could do it. And he gives it to us as a free gift. But we have to accept it. Like a, a salve on a wounded soul is the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And he says, you're mine. And he says, I will protect you. Look what it says back there in verse 43. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why not? We see, it, we see it all around us. We see people being consumed by the world and by the sins of this world. Why not us? Well, it's because God is there to protect us. Oh, we're going to pass through the waters. We're going to walk through the fire. We're going to have difficult times. We're going to have times that are extremely difficult where we think we are never going to make it. I mean, he's, he's not going to pick us up and lift us up and fly us over all the problems in this world and all the problems we're going to encounter in our lives. It'd be great if he did. Oh, that's what I hope for. That's what I want him to do. Don't let me walk through these problems, Lord. Don't let me walk through this week where I know I have a lot of things i got to do, accomplish and not enough time to do them. Don't let me walk through this time where I have doubts. Don't let me walk through this time where I know I'm going to be persecuted. He says, no, you're going to walk through them. But I'm going to be with you all the way. And many times, he's going before us. Think about it. And this, these, these words in Isaiah reflect back to the exodus from Egypt. I mean, think about that. You're at the water's edge, and you've got the whole Egyptian army behind you. But there's the pillar of smoke that's standing between you and that army. And God opens up the waters and you're walking through. And then after you get through, the Egyptians start coming through and God dumps the water back on top of them. When the Israelites were walking in the desert, there was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night that would lead them. Sometimes he walks before us to make the way through our struggles. Sometimes he walks with us and picks us up and carries us through. Sometimes he's behind us, pushing us along. Keep moving. <laughs> Don't stop. We will see extreme times of testing through water and fire in our lives, both. But when we have our eyes firmly on Christ, we know we're going to survive. And we'll be different. Oh, believe me, we can't walk through water and fire without it changing who we are. 
As long as we keep our eyes on Christ, we'll be better than we were before. We'll be more like Christ than we were before. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I can't believe this is happening to me. Right? We're in the middle. Why? What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because you're human. And it's happening because you live in a world that's fallen and broken. And it's happening because you have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to get you through it. you just got to walk through it with Him. Peter goes on to say, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You want to know how the world will know something's different about us? Is when we're going through trials and we're not acting like they would. And we're not acting like they do. I think too many times, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, we don't. We act like the world when we go through trials. Instead of acting like, you know what? Christ has suffered much more than this. I'm blessed. Get me through it, Lord. Get me to the other side. The most important thing is not who you are or what you deserve, but whose you are. You belong to the king. You are his, bought with a price. God's going to discipline us, yes, but that's not his final word. You want to know why Revelation is in the Bible? Boy, it would be a pretty gloomy book if it wasn't. And you think Revelation is pretty bad. No, the ending is awesome. God does not... Just send us to our room to never come out again. I know as parents, we'd love to do that sometimes. Send our kids to our room. Just don't come out. I don't want to see you. You know, God doesn't do that. Because God's final word to us is salvation. But why? Why, why does God do this? I mean, we, we look, think about the time when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and he's getting the Ten Commandments and Moses thinks everything is great. Now God's given us the law and, and, and God says, but the people are rebelling against me. They're down there worshiping an idol. And Moses says, oh, Lord. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And I'll raise up a nation through you. Moses says, don't do it. Because everybody will say, you just brought him out here to kill him. Moses gave up the glory of being the father of a nation because he was more concerned about the name of the Lord. And that's why God does what he does. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, he says, for I, he says, the reason he does this is for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Now, again, these verses are reflecting back to Egypt. Now, i got a question for you. How is it possible that the strongest military, the most powerful military of its time, could not overcome and return the Israelites back to Egypt? They had chariots, horses, 
Most of the Israelites were probably on foot. Why? It was because Yahweh was protecting them. And at the end of the day, the Israelites, the Israelite sinners are saved and the Egyptian sinners are killed. They're both sinners. God did not save the Israelites because they were more religious. You and I are not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ just because we're more righteous than someone else. More righteous than those who don't believe. We also need to understand, we know that the only exchange that saves us is Jesus Christ taking upon himself our sins on the cross. But what we see in these verses is God exchanging the Egyptians for the Israelites. God gave up the Egyptians. He could have saved them. He could have sent them a Messiah. But he didn't. Why? I think it was to show the Israelites what they deserved. They deserved to be to be drowned in the, the Nile or whatever, the Sea of Reeds when it was flooded over. They deserved that. But they got grace. You and I need to remember that. We deserve condemnation and wrath. But what does God give us? Mercy. Undeserved mercy. So God calls out. He calls us to him. In verse 5 of 43, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Through all the stuff we've experienced in the last three, four years, we should not be fearful. Oh, but man, I was, I was afraid I was going to get something. I was going to die. Yeah? So? God knew what was going to happen. He has a plan. It happens. Why are you fearful? Don't be afraid. God is with you. I will bring your offspring from the east... And from the west, I will gather you. So here we're, we're jumping forward in time where he's going to be calling back the Israelites back. But there's a double meaning here. You need to remember this. God, God always uses things. He's a, he's a recycler. He likes to use things multiple times. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble who among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witness to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. Now, like I said, the immediate context here is that God is going to call the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And we, we see that. He did this during the time of Nehemiah. He did this in the time of Ezra. Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds the city walls. And the Jews come back. We also see this occurred that when Israel became a nation in 1948. Look into that sometime. Look and see how many Jews returned to Israel after World War II when it became a nation. I've been reading some books, a book on, on uh, the corruption that's in our nation right now and has been for a long, really, really long time. 
And one of the things they talk about is she, she talks about the, is she talks about the uh, the number of things that happened so that Israel could fight the wars they had to fight for independence to form their nation. And it, it, she said talks about it because it was underhanded sometimes. They changed. It wasn't it wasn't an F six or it wasn't a fighter jet they were sending. It was something else that they were sending over there. But they did it. And so we're, we're seeing God saying, I'm going to call my people. I'm going to call them all back. And that's what has happened. But the day is coming when God will call his, elects from the, his elect from the ends of the earth. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. when he's taught, The disciples asked him, so when is the end of the age? How do we know what's going to happen? And Jesus goes into this on, the, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. He explains this. In verse 31 of Matthew 24, he says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. But that's not only what's going to happen, because he's also going to gather all the people who have rejected Christ, and he's going to challenge them, as he did they're little gods. We look back here. We look back here in Isaiah 43 because he says, All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among you can declare this and show us the former things? Uh, who can tell us what happened in the past? Who can tell us what happened in the future? It's like what we talked about last week when he says, Bring your gods. Let them tell us and prove us that they're a god. Now he's saying, I'm going to call the nations. And the nations will need to answer this. And we see this. Fulfillment in, in Revelation 20, what's going to happen at the great white throne. He says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened. Uh, by the way, there are multiple books. Uh, it's not computerized, obviously. There are multiple books in heaven, and the angels are recording everything that happens. There's one book called the Book of Life. And if you're a believer in Christ, your name is written in there. It, and it cannot be blotted out. God, God warns, but it doesn't say that it's possible. He says, And I saw the day, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. No more death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is, this is the second judgment. This is the, 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 the judgment at the white, great white throne judgment. Something you and I don't have to worry about if you're a believer. If you trust in Christ for your salvation, you don't have to worry about the lake of fire. It's not where we're going to be. But we see this in Isaiah foretelling God calling the nations together. That brings us to the reason. Why does God do this? In verse 10 of Isaiah 43 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I'm God. 
not me, him. God is saying, I am God. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you were my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Understand that the purpose of God, what God is doing in us and in this world, is to bring Him glory. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be bringing God the glory. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ has no room for any other spiritual path that claims to lead to God. There is only one the church, some churches today will tell you there's more than one way to God. All paths lead to God. No, they don't. Scripture never says that. Scripture says there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't the best way. He is the only way. And see, what God wants us to do, He wants us to be living proof that He alone is all-sufficient for us. He wants us to show the world, to show those around us, that God is everything we need. See, there, there is no other, there's no other religion in the world that has God as the, the goal of glory. I mean, <laughs> usually most other religions glorify themselves. New age, it's all about glorifying yourself. All of it is always about me. But we are to glorify God and God alone. The only true truth is the one that glorifies Yahweh as God. Everything else is a compromise. So what's the, what's the outcome? Verses 14 through 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the, greater, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. No power on this earth is more powerful than Yahweh. And he will bring them down. Remember, not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God has done many mighty things throughout history. He's, doing, he's done things that only an all-powerful God could do. But here God tells us, don't remember those. Why? Because of the new thing that he's doing. And that new thing is salvation through Jesus Christ. And that salvation is much greater than anything else he's ever done. And it's, and it's not that we're supposed to forget everything that God has done. It's not that we're supposed to just you know, ignore it. It's that what God has done through Jesus Christ outshines Everything else that we pay no, it doesn't, it's all about 
Christ and salvation through Him. And then His ultimate purpose for all of creation, including us, is to bring Him praise. He's never going to surrender that purpose. That's why, that's why Satan wants it. That's why he wants to ascend to the throne. He wants that praise. He tried to get Jesus to praise him. He tries to get us to praise him. He'll have that moment in time during the tribulation where he will be praised. He's longing for that. But it won't last. Yahweh is the only God and our only Savior. And he wants to be known amongst all of creation. So as, as His glory grips our heart, as His love for us and Him being with us grabs us, we are reformed. We're renewed into this heroic life that could be lived through Jesus Christ. Let's live by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the question is, are we going to embrace that? And are we going to bring Him glory? Or are we going to continue to seek after the idols of this world and bring ourselves glory? It's a question we have to ask ourselves today. We'll look at revival next week and what we, why we need it and what might be happening today down in Tennessee. I don't know. We'll, I'm going to do some more research on it. But who's going to get the glory, us or him?